Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey everyone, welcome to the Heart Over Hype podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Shamar Charles. This podcast focuses on the goal of providing unique and culturally sensitive perspectives on physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health and wellness. Our goal is to provide you with the best millennial and Gen Z health news you can use. If you like this podcast, follow us on Instagram at HOHThePodcast and give us a rating of five stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Now, without further delay, let's get started. Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of Heart Over Hype. I'm your host, Dr. Shamar Charles, and today we're talking about one of my favorite topics, financial health. Probably the most important topic we're not taught in school. Like physical health, financial health is fundamentally key to leading a happy and successful life. In fact, creating a sound financial plan does more than just alleviate our stress. It serves as the foundation for a stable and secure future. While there's no specific number or score that measures your financial health, people with good financial health pay close attention to things like credit, debt, savings, retirement planning, and insurance. Oh, and they tend to live happier and healthier lives too. To give us a more in-depth look at what constitutes a financially healthy life, we have with us Anna Conte, founder of Data Dream Financial Planning, a virtual financial planning firm that serves the needs of 30 to 40-something-year-old women of color and business owners who want to live boldly and make a lasting impact on their family tree. She's also the host of First Gen Realness Podcast. She is Gambian. She is Latina. She is fiery and amazing, and we love her, and we're so happy that she's here with us. So hello, hello. Thank you again for being here with us. But before we jump in, tell us how you got started in this space. Yeah, um, thanks so much for having me. I so I basically fell into it. Um, you know, you and I, you know what kind of economy we graduated into, right? And so I was just out here looking for a job and my first job out of college was like organizing conferences for people that wanted to do business in Latin America and I ended up um, organizing one for people who wanted to do wealth management in Latin America. And so in talking, organizing that and talking to it, to people in that industry, I just saw that like the skills that they had that made them successful were a lot of things that I had and things that I enjoyed doing. So I was like, okay, I love talking to people. I love problem solving. I like, you know, taking seemingly complex things and kind of streamlining them and making them simple. And so that was, that was really what, um, what, what attracted me to it. And I've been, so I, I left there, I started searching in earnest about a month after I kind of discovered that. And I think I left that job and started in wealth management um, about four months later, and I've been doing it ever since. As you mentioned, when we graduated from NYU, the economy was in such bad shape. It really forced us to get a new education in all things financial. As I mentioned in the teaser, we're not formally taught anything about fiscal responsibility in college or grad school. Honestly, in my opinion, it's probably one of the major failures of our education system. So for our viewers who may not know, what is financial health and how can we become more financially health literate? Yeah, we totally don't. And I really wish um, that that it was it played a better part in things. But I think it's one of those things that 
you know, finances are very overwhelming and very emotionally fraught for a lot of people. I think it's very similar to like weight loss or being overweight. It can feel very um, like if you haven't achieved what you think you should have, then, you know, there's a lot of shame and guilt attached to that, that I think are unproductive. So I think that means that overall our society just doesn't talk about it and we don't address it because we all sort of have this lingering feeling that, that we're not doing as well as we could be. Um, I, I really think that financial health is living with a plan and without stress, right? And, and that doesn't necessitate consulting a professional, but I do think it always requires understanding what your personal financial situation looks like, where you're trying to get it to, and then having a game plan to get there. Um, whether that's, like I said, professionally drawn up or something that you're just doing, putting together for yourself with, you know, all the online calculators and things like that that are out there. In my quest to secure the bag, as the young folks say, <laughs> uh, I've made a lot of mistakes. What are some of the most common mistakes you see young people make when they start their fiscal journey? I feel like people look for the magic bullet. Right. So people are out here like, yeah, start trading options or yeah, Robin Hood or <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're just <clears throat> or th there's that they, they're looking for the thing that's going to instantly make their financial situation better, which doesn't exist. Spoiler alert. Um, or I think that they just sort of ignore it um, and don't address it until it is a glaring issue. So one of the things, you know, I oftentimes have people come to me when they're about to have kids and they're like, we've never addressed our financial situation. Um, and now we're kind of freaking out. And so, you know, I think by taking those steps at the onset of your career as young as you can to really understand finances and understand where you stand in terms of your personal finances and having some sort of game plan, the better off you'll be. Building wealth and equity in this country is hard for anyone, but it's especially difficult for us black and brown folk. That's no news here, I know. There's a long history of discriminatory patterns of disinvestment and obstructive lending practices that have served as an impediment to black wealth building. Uh, let me give you a little history lesson. In 1933, FDR's administration created the Home Owners Loan Corporation to reduce home foreclosures during the Depression. The Home Owners Loan Corporation and the Federal Housing Authority determined whether areas were deemed unfit for investment by banks, insurance companies, savings and loan associations, and other financial service companies. The areas were physically demarcated with red shading on a map. You, you see where I'm going here. This was called redlining. During this time, African Americans, many for the first time, had enough money to build equity through home ownership. But the government used these red demarcated areas that were largely inhabited by black and brown people as a way to deny them loan mortgages and therefore an opportunity to live in an affluent neighborhood. They even went as far as to de-invest in black communities, leaving them in disrepair and largely untenable. We now know what we knew back then, but in much greater magnitude, that where you live plays a huge role in your health. Safer neighborhoods are less stressful. Uh, affluent neighborhoods have more healthy food options and better school district. The list goes on and on. So when I say the American dream is a myth, 
I'm not just saying it for my own health. I'm keeping it real. It's a myth because it was never meant to be accessible to us. And honestly, you could make the argument that it's not even really accessible to the people it was created to help most. So my question to you is this. In light of all of the historical discrimination that has gone on, what can we do to bridge the socioeconomic gaps that exist? Yeah, um, it is very hard because I think it's it's a double double issue. Um, the first being that we are historically underpaid so that we have less income to save, right? Even people with similar income levels, it's not necessarily the discussion of, oh, you know, um, black and brown folks are oftentimes um, working in service jobs or low-wage jobs, which is true, but the reality is you can have a black doctor and a white doctor and the black doctor is going to make less and they went to similar schools and have similar backgrounds and everything. So um, that just means that we we have less money to work with, right? And then the other challenge I think is an information challenge. And that is also wealth, but it's wealth that is passed down from generation to generation. So if you come from a wealthier background, you're taught from a very young age, how to manage money, how to think about money, how to think about money in the long term, um, not just this month or this, this two weeks or this you know quarter or whatever, you're thinking like five, 10, 15, plus years down the road and making decisions strategically from that standpoint. And I think that that's something that a lot of us are missing because even if we are, you know, we've done all the quote unquote right things, we've got a good education, you know, even if our parents were very well, my parents were very well educated, right? As are your shams. But, um, you know, I think the, the problem is that they don't necessarily come from that background of being able to having the luxury of thinking that long-term and they pass down that shorter term thinking to us. You know what I mean? Um, they might plan long-term for things like education and that kind of stuff. But, but when we're talking about like saving and investing and making strategic investments, um, that's, that's largely missing. This concept that you discussed, the scarcity tax is very real. Short-term thinking has definitely been part of our history. It has been a survival mechanism and it has literally helped us to exist. And while that type of thinking uh, has been passed down to us and has been disadvantageous in some respect, it has been advantageous in others and we just can't deny it. But you know what? I also feel to your point that we have to give a lot of kudos to our parents because they did have a long-term vision. They did have a long-term vision, and they really put a high premium on getting a quality education, and that has meant a lot to us. In fact, it's meant the world to us because we've benefited greatly from that vision, and you know what? I got to tell you, the only disadvantage from that vision is this massive student debt that I feel like we've almost inherited. I can say for myself, and I speak for actually probably a lot of people out there, that student debt is the bane of my existence. It's literally the only disadvantage that I've gotten from my parents' long-term thinking. And it has stifled my ability to achieve financial freedom, at least in the timeline that I had set for myself in my own head. Um, And it's really just been an obstacle uh, for me with respect to uh, moving forward uh, on my financial path. So my question to you is, do you think that it's worth it for young people to take on student debt, especially prior to uh, joining the workforce? This isn't another like emotionally fraught conversation because I think so many of us did. I know I graduated with a ton of debt. I mean, when you go to an expensive school, that's usually a byproduct, right? Um, I think they're, the only type of debt that's bad or 
um, really negative is one that you don't have a strategic plan to pay off. Right. And so I think the problem with student loan debt is that most of us are not mature enough to make those decisions um, about our career path or our um, long term income uh, potential. Right. Um, what our life is going to look like post school. And so that ultimately leads to bad debt because we just are incurring this debt without really understanding the numbers and understanding the long term consequences of it. So in a long, long story short, um, I think it is not a good thing, but at the end of the day, you know, we can hopefully reform that situation for folk like future generations, but for us, we're, <laughs> we're kind of stuck. To your point, when we were taking out loans for school, we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. We didn't know the numbers and these schools and financial institutions certainly didn't take the time to explain any of this to us in great detail. That really taught me that this is a business and willful ignorance makes the capitalist wheel turn. They kind of prey on you as a college student. And I think that's something that we need to unpack. But as we get older and we vet different ways to uh, build equity, right? So now we're like putting all the school stuff behind us and we're moving forward. Home ownership comes to mind. And although there is a growing sentiment that uh, home ownership isn't the silver bullet that we thought it was, uh, even though there's a growing sentiment that uh, home ownership isn't all that it's cracked up to be. It's still something that I think we all think about quite often. What are your thoughts on that? I think there is a generational shift. I think, um, you know, our parents' generation, and I think in particular when you're talking about um, immigrants, they placed such a high premium on home ownership, right? Because I think they just wanted to put down roots. They wanted to put down roots themselves. They want you to put down roots because, you know, it's all very fresh for them, right? And so that led to, I think for a while, for maybe folks 10 years older than us, that led for a while to people buying homes and maybe not necessarily thinking about the long-term trajectory. I think you're seeing a trend here, right? Um, you know, one, one consequence of the last recession that I think we're seeing is that, you know, there's not a lot of job security and you need to be much more mobile. Um, you need to be able to pick up necessarily and and get a job, you know, move across country to get a job, right? If you if you suddenly find yourself without employment or simply you feel like there's a better opportunity for you elsewhere, right? And homeownership can be a big hindrance for that, especially if you're not in a market that is, uh, you know, inventory, real estate inventory moves quickly. Um, you know, if you're not on the coast, basically, right? So I'm seeing amongst a lot of my clients that they're just not interested. Um, they feel like it's going to tie them down. I think maybe when they get to 40s or, yeah, I think early mid 40s is when they start to feel some sort of um, inclination to buy a house. But I, I think beforehand it was like you got married at 25 and you bought a house like six months later. You know, that was what you did. And I think people are putting that off for a lot of reasons, but also because of the student loan debt that we were talking about earlier. We're all familiar with the path you're supposed to follow as an adult. First, you head off to college so that you can get a job. After graduation, you start working and living on your own for the first time. After a couple of years of saving up, it's time to buy a home so you can start uh, settling down. And that house will serve as a form of equity towards your retirement. If that's not in vogue anymore, what are some other ways to start saving for your retirement? 
Yeah. Um, so I want to, I'm, I'm definitely going to answer that because that's something that I feel very strongly about, but I want, I do want to say also, I think that we make a mistake in viewing our primary residence as like our primary investment. I think it does us a disservice because the reality is depending on the market you live in, you may live in a market that's really hot, right? New York is one of those markets, San Francisco, like the Bay area, fine. But if you are not in one of those really booming real estate markets, the reality is your value of your real estate is likely not appreciating very much. And it's it's also tied up in a house that can be difficult, have costs associated with it to access, right? So, um, you know, one of the exercises I walk through clients is look with clients is looking at your liquid assets like cash versus your illiquid assets. And I, I like to have that differentiation because the reality is we have all of these different things that we might be able to access, but if it's going to cost you a lot of money or there's going to be negative ramifications associated with that, then maybe looking at that different, a little bit differently is important. Um, but for anybody who wants to start to build wealth and, and build that nest egg for themselves for retirement, I think the, the first thing is going to be your retirement vehicle. So if you are employed um, and your employer has a 401k or 401, 403b, um, contributing to that straight out the gate is going to be one of the biggest um, gifts you can give to yourself. It really has the benefit of reducing your taxable income in the short term. Um, perhaps you have a company match, so the company is adding money to your account for you. And that money is invested, you know, when invested appropriately, it can, it can grow significantly more than things like real estate, right? Certainly more than a savings account. Um, if you are not employed at an employer that has a retirement plan, then you can just go with a simple IRA. Um, you know, any of the online investment firms like Fidelity or Vanguard or Charles Schwab um, have allow you to open those. And that's also a really good, easy resource um, for that is available to anyone, regardless of employment status. Can you have both a 401k and a, a Roth IRA? Yeah, you can. So, you know, all of these things have their specific rules, right? So you are allowed to contribute um, for 2020, it's $19,500 to a 401k or 403b, depending on the type of institution you work at. Um, an IRA is traditional or Roth is $6,000 total. Um, so if you have the ability to save in both of those, then you can put away a good amount of money. What role does the stock market have to play in all this? It's definitely the one that comes up the most in terms of conversation. It's also the topic that tends to get people the most excited, but it's also the trickiest one, right? Totally. And this is the thing that I think, um, you know, I alluded to earlier about people looking for the magic bullet. I believe very firmly in investing. Like I invest every single month without fail. Like that has been my, what I've been doing since like the last seven or eight years, because I know the importance of doing that. Right. But the problem is, is when we look at it as like a get rich quick thing, um, the most successful investors are long-term focused investors. And so, you know, you are doing your research, understanding what you're buying now and holding it for the long-term, not jumping in and out of it. Right. Um, and so you can invest in your IRAs and your 401ks. Um, you are actually investing in the stock market, right? You are a experiencing the growth and you know when people say the dow jones is up like five percent today that's if you're invested in those companies then you're you're doing you're getting the similar um rate of return right 
but I think people make it like want to make it this really fancy thing. And you can get into all of these really exotic, you know, investments and, you know, buying like penny stocks and all of this really esoteric things. But the reality is you have a lot of potential to get burned. And I think the problem is, is that short term thinking versus the long term thinking. Cash is king right now. In other words, uh, people are encouraged to save what little money they have. But if you have a little bit extra saved up, if you have a little nest egg, would now be a good time to invest in the stock market, especially while stock prices are low? Or are there better ways to grow your money? So I think the, you know, there, there is certainly um, something to be said for watching the market closely and keeping cash, they call it dry powder in the industry, um, like keeping a reserve of cash for when the market dips and you want to throw some money in there. The problem with that is, that we are not 100% rational beings, right? And we make emotional decisions sometimes that have negative effects. So, you know, if you dump a bunch of cash into the stock market and then the next day it's down 6%, which, you know, earlier this year, it was doing a lot of very um, wild swings, right? So if you do that and you can't stomach that loss and you can't stomach that because it's not, it's a paper loss. It's not an actual loss, right? If you can't stomach that, then it's not a good idea to be doing that. What I really recommend to people is you have your strategic game plan that we talked about earlier and you make systematic investments based on that plan, right? So if you say, okay, I have run the numbers, there are all kinds of free online calculators and software that you can use. And I need to save a thousand dollars a month in order to retire at the, you know, the way I want to, right? And so that means you either do it through your 401k and it's automated or you set it up to whereas, you know, you have that money going towards your investment accounts every month on payday or, you know, whenever you decide and you set it up and it's invested and you don't look at it. I personally feel like that is the best thing to do because especially for new investors, people that are getting started, those big swings can really jar you. And if you're not emotionally prepared for it, or you are not um, really focused on the long term and understanding that this is part and parcel of the investing process, then, then it can be very um, disconcerting. And, you, and, and the reality is your investment behavior jumping in and out of the market because you're emotionally stressed about what's going on has more of an impact actually than just about anything else in terms of your long-term investment performance. At what age should people start? I'm asking this because my college seniors are about to go out into the real world after graduation, and they might be interested in opening a high-yield savings account or even investing in the stock market on an app like Robinhood. What should I tell them? Is there space for them to get involved? I do think there is the space. I think there is a knowledge gap. So we're talking about the racial wealth gap. There's a significant knowledge gap. So, you know, it is certainly available to everybody. You know, the internet is available to everybody, but you and I both know that all people in America are not created equal or not treated equal and don't experience the same America that we do. Right. And so there are people sitting in Kentucky that may mean don't have good internet access. Right. And so those are real limitations and I don't want to discount that. Having said that, if you are somebody that is listening to this, then it is a hundred percent available to you. And to take it further, 
I really believe, you know, we've seen all of these social justice, racial justice, racial equity movements this year. And, you know, you and I have talked at length about what happens in America and, you know, how America really is a dangerous place for black and brown people, right? It historically has been and it continues to be now. I really feel like having the financial empowerment and black and brown people making a concerted effort to build wealth and therefore to build empowerment within our communities is a like revolutionary act. And it is going to allow us to protect ourselves and also to help change America for the better, right? Because we all know that America listens to money. That's the only thing they care about. And so there's a bunch of, you know, black Bill Gates walking around, they're going to start listening. And I really feel like that is our individual prerogative. That's my soapbox to stand on. I want like every 18, every black 18 year old go open an investment account and like start saving and have a plan and educate yourself that way. Because the reality is the government doesn't have your back. You got to have your own back. I couldn't agree with you more on your podcast, First Gen Realness. You do a great job of celebrating the first gen experience and how it contributes to America's cultural fabric. But despite our many wins, we know that the American dream has not been accessible to all groups. I really want to double down on that. But we do have an election coming November 3rd, and a lot of people hope that that changes. We're hearing tax breaks from one candidate and tax hikes from another. It's all really confusing. Should people wait until after the election to make financial decisions, or should they continue to make small incremental changes? Yeah, I really feel like we have to focus in terms of your personal finances, you have to focus on yourself. Um, You can't make decisions off of theoretical information um, that is not in your control. I can make decisions on, okay, in 10 years, I'm going to buy a house. In 20 years, I'm going to relocate to a different area or I'm going to start a business or those kind of things. You can make decisions on things that you can control, but you cannot make decisions off of theoretical stuff that may or may not happen in the future. And I think this, you know, the tax situation and um, you know, regulatory changes and all of that really fall under that other category. You can't control that. And while it might be helpful to some to feel like they're abreast of that, I personally don't pay much attention to it unless it's like legislation that is being pre- presented to the to, to Congress right now. Um, I think, you know, there's so much noise out there. And so we can end up as individuals on many levels getting lost in that. And, and, then, you know, the, the repercussion of that is oftentimes we don't take action, right? Because, oh, you know, Biden's going to raise taxes or, oh, Trump's going to cut taxes. So maybe I should wait. Well, what if they don't? Um, they say a lot of things that they don't ever do. And so you end up having the consequences of this theoretical thing that you were trying to use as a decision making point. I don't think it's helpful. Speaking of the government not coming through, people have been waiting and are still waiting on a decision for health care. Black people in this country, they wait and they wait and they wait and they wait and they wait. The same way people shouldn't wait on the government to tend to their health needs, they should not wait for a miracle to happen. The reason I talk about finances so much is because there is a direct correlation between fiscal health and physical health. If people want to become more financially literate, what are some resources that you would suggest? Um, There are a lot. Um, and a lot of good ones. I think if you want to read and learn more about the racial wealth gap, I would say The Color of Wealth is a good book. Um, it, it 
shows a lot of the historical policies that have been implemented in the US and why communities of color historically have less wealth um, than, than white communities. Um, you know, it talks about redlining and, you know, all of these kind of things that we have all heard about, but it's really comprehensive and it's sobering to read it all in one thing. I'd say if you just want to learn more about personal finances and how to um, structure your finances, there are actually a couple podcasts that I really like. Um, one is the Minority Money podcast. That's run by a friend of mine. Um, his name is Emlyn Miles Mattingly brother out of California. Um, there's one called the Young Money Podcast. Um, also, well, actually, he's from, he's in Jersey um, by Desarte Yarnway. Um, that's another good one. Those are both financial advisors, and they focus on Black and Hispanic communities um, and talking about, like, financial issues and, and how to structure your finances in a, in a way that, that is really sound and thinking long-term. Um, blogs, in terms of blogs, I think um, Nerd Wallet is a good one. Um, Motley Fool is another good one. Those are ones that, that you can dig into a little bit deeper to learn more about investments and those kind of things. Okay, this is my favorite part of the show. It's myth busting. And I have two questions for you. So number one, you should never invest in any endeavor that includes your family or friends. So in other words, so as to not complicate the relationship you should probably avoid investing in anything that might cause some type of financial turmoil with your family or friends, as opposed to investing in an endeavor that deals with strangers. What are your thoughts on that? I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but I think a lot of times people don't do the work and don't think about all the potential scenarios that can come about and they don't protect themselves appropriately, right? So let's say you're gonna buy a property with your cousin. I'm just, gonna, I'm just making it up. Do you have an operating agreement? Do you have an ownership agreement or, or a legal ownership structure? Have you guys discussed you know, funding for that? Have you discussed dissolution of that? Um, should one person wanna liquidate and the other person doesn't, like a buyout um, potential? You know, Have you discussed how repairs and those kind of things are gonna be paid for? If you don't do that work on the front end, then it it oftentimes leads to a nightmare. I think maybe you might be lucky and your cousin's real cool and like, you know, doesn't have any drama, doesn't maybe get married and their spouse wants nothing to do with this stuff. You just have to control for all of these things on the front end. If you're not willing to do that and spend the money and the time to invest in those documents and conversations, then it is a bad idea. If you are willing to do it and you also feel like your long-term interests are aligned, it's just like with a marriage or a relationship or anything, right? If your long-term interests are aligned um, and you've had those conversations to make sure that everybody's on the same page on the front end, then it usually ends up well. And if you're also willing to keep those lines of communication open, if you're not willing to do that, then I think it ends up ugly. I'm so happy you said marriage because my second question is about prenups. So here goes. A prenuptial agreement is a necessary ingredient to a financially healthy relationship. So it's funny you ask that because I organized a virtual conference uh, last month. And one of the segments that I had it was like pre-recorded segments with um, different industry experts. And one of them was with a family and marital law attorney. And I was always of the opinion that it only really mattered um, when 
you had significant assets, right? Um, when you had something significant to protect. However, this attorney made me really see that there's so much more to it, right? If both parties come to the relationship with debt and then you divorce, like does one get credit for helping pay the other's debt during that time? Um, you know, does, and, and also since we're talking to communities of color, like people of color, I think, you know, black women historically, and, and right now in this moment, we are, you know, starting businesses at a disproportionate amount. 42% of all the businesses last, founded last year were by black women. Um, we are reaching, exactly, I was like, dang, yes. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, black women have higher educational attainment now. Um, I don't know the exact statistics, but we are in uh, um, college and graduate school at disproportionate rates compared to black men. Um, we are building wealth and really trying and putting in the work. And so, if you get married and don't protect, let's say your home that you had pre-marriage or whatever assets you had pre-marriage, then you can stand to lose that. And, and if you get divorced and the, the, the problem is that we are already starting from so far behind, we don't have a leg up, right? Like we're starting building this whole foundation and this whole house over from scratch. And so any little setback is, is much deeper felt for us than it is for, for white women, I think. And so we have to be that much more careful and protect that much more. Should people be discussing the debt that they're bringing into relationships? Yeah, I think people need to talk more about finances before they get married um, and have a clear understanding about where everybody stands and what whether you're on the same page in terms of whether we want to aggressively pay off the debt, whether we're okay having debt, whether, um, you know, our personal financial situation is um, at similar levels. Doing all of that um, on the front end is very important. So I don't, I think that debt definitely needs to be discussed, especially because our generation is graduating school and coming into our relationships in adulthood with significant amount of debt as it stands. Thanks so much, Anna. You tackled all the hard questions. Where can people find your work? Yeah, so my website's daretodreamplanning.com. I also have a blog, I should have mentioned that too, where I talk about personal finance. Um, and I also hang out a lot in terms of socials on Insta and Twitter, and my handle there is the same. It's at A-N-J-I-E-K-O-N-T-E. That's a wrap, folks. If you have any questions or comments, drop me a line at HOH the Podcast. And of course, thank you for listening. As always, stay safe, wear a mask, and make your voice heard at the polls on or before November 3rd. See you next week. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube 
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.